Section 14 of Waverley, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Waverley, or Tis Sixty Years Since, Volume 1, by Sir Walter Scott. Section 14. Chapter 9. More of the Manor House and its Environs. After having satisfied his curiosity by gazing around him for a few minutes, Waverley applied himself to the massive knocker of the hall door, the architrave of which bore the date 1594. But no answer was returned, though the peal resounded through a number of apartments, and was echoed from the courtyard walls without the house, startling the pigeons from the venerable rotunda which they occupied, and alarming anew even the distant village curs, which had retired to sleep upon their respective dunghills. Tired of the din which he created, and the unprofitable responses which it excited, Waverley began to think that he had reached the castle of Orgoglio, as entered by the victorious Prince Arthur. When gan he loudly through the house to call, but no man cared to answer to his cry, there reigned a solemn silence over all, nor voice was heard, nor white was seen in bower or hall. Filled almost with expectation of beholding some old, old man with beard as white as snow, whom he might question concerning this deserted mansion, our hero turned to a little oaken wicket door, well clenched with iron nails, which opened in the courtyard wall at its angle with the house. It was only latched, notwithstanding its fortified appearance, and when opened, admitted him into the garden, which presented a pleasant scene. Footnote. At Ravelston may be seen such a garden, which the taste of the proprietor, the author's friend and kinsman, Sir Alexander Keith, Knight Marischal, has judiciously preserved. That, as well as the house is, however, of smaller dimensions than the Baron of Bradwardine's mansion and garden are presumed to have been. And footnote. The southern side of the house, clothed with fruit trees, and having many evergreens trained upon its walls, extended its irregular yet venerable front along a terrace, partly paved, partly graveled, partly bordered with flowers and choice shrubs. This elevation descended by three several flights of steps, placed in its center and at the extremities, into what might be called the garden proper and was fenced along the top by a stone parapet with a heavy balustrade, ornamented from space to space with huge grotesque figures of animals seated upon their haunches, among which the favorite bear was repeatedly introduced. Placed in the middle of the terrace between a sashed door opening from the house and the central flight of steps, a huge animal of the same species supported on its head and forepaws a sundial of large circumference, inscribed with more diagrams than Edward's mathematics enabled him to decipher. The garden, which seemed to be kept with great accuracy, abounded in fruit trees, and exhibited a profusion of flowers and evergreens cut into grotesque forms. It was laid out in terraces, which descended rank by rank from the western wall to a huge brook, which had a tranquil and smooth appearance, where it served as a boundary to the garden but, near the extremity, leapt in tumult over a strong dam, or warehead, the cause of its temporary tranquillity, and there, forming a cascade, was overlooked by an octangular summer-house, 
with a gilded bear on the top by way of vane. After this feat, the brook, assuming its natural rapid and fierce character, escaped from the eye down a deep and wooded dell, from the copse of which arose a massive but ruinous tower, the former habitation of the barons of Bradwardine. The margin of the brook, opposite to the garden, displayed a narrow meadow, or how, as it is called, which formed a small washing green. The bank, which retired behind it, was covered by ancient trees. The scene, though pleasing, was not quite equal to the gardens of Alcina, yet wanted not the du donzilec garule of that enchanted paradise, for upon the green aforesaid two bare-legged damsels, each standing in a spacious tub, performed with their feet the office of a patent washing machine. These did not, however, like the maidens of Armida, remain to greet with their harmony the approaching guest, but, alarmed at the appearance of a handsome stranger on the opposite side, dropped their garments, I should say garment to be quite correct, over their limbs, which their occupation exposed somewhat too freely, and, with a shrill exclamation of, Eh, sirs! uttered with an accent between modesty and coquetry, sprung off like deer in different directions. Waverley began to despair of gaining entrance into this solitary and seemingly enchanted mansion, when a man advanced up one of the garden alleys, where he still retained his station. Trusting this might be a gardener, or some domestic belonging to the house, Edward descended the steps in order to meet him. But as the figure approached, and long before he could descry its features, he was struck with the oddity of its appearance and gestures. Sometimes this Mr. White held his hands clasped over his head, like an Indian joke in the attitude of penance. Sometimes he swung them perpendicularly like a pendulum on each side, and anon he slapped them swiftly and repeatedly across his breast, like the substitute used by a hackney coachman for his usual flogging exercise, when his cattle are idle upon the stand, in a clear frosty day. His gait was as singular as his gestures, for at times he hopped with great perseverance on the right foot, then exchanged that supporter to advance in the same manner on the left, and then putting his feet close together, he hopped upon both at once. His attire, also, was antiquated and extravagant. It consisted in a sort of grey jerkin with scarlet cuffs and slashed sleeves, showing a scarlet lining. The other parts of the dress corresponded in color, not forgetting a pair of scarlet stockings and a scarlet bonnet, proudly surmounted with a turkey's feather. Edward, whom he did not seem to observe, now perceived confirmation in his features of what the mien and gestures had already announced. It was apparently neither idiocy nor insanity which gave that wild, unsettled, irregular expression to a face which naturally was rather handsome but something that resembled a compound of both, where the simplicity of the fool was mixed with the extravagance of a crazed imagination. He sung with great earnestness, and not without some taste, a fragment of an old Scottish ditty. False love, and hast thou played me this, in summer among the flowers? I will repay thee back again in winter among the showers. Unless again, again, my love, unless you turn again, as you with other maidens rove, I'll smile on other men. Footnote. 
This is a genuine ancient fragment, with some alteration in the last two lines. End footnote. Here, lifting up his eyes, which had hitherto been fixed in observing how his feet kept time to the tune, he beheld Waverley and instantly doffed his cap, with many grotesque signals of surprise, respect, and salutation. Edward, though with little hope of receiving an answer to any constant question, requested to know whether Mr. Bradwardine were at home, or where he could find any of the domestics. The questioned party replied, and, like the witch of Thalaba, still his speech was song. The knights to the mountain, his bugle to wind, the ladies to greenwood, her garland to bind. The bower of Bird Ellen has moss on the floor, that the step of Lord William be silent and sure. This conveyed no information, and Edward, repeating his queries, received a rapid answer, in which, from the haste and peculiarity of the dialect, the word butler was alone intelligible. Waverley then requested to see the butler, upon which the fellow, with a knowing look and nod of intelligence, made a signal to Edward to follow, and began to dance and caper down the alley up which he had made his approaches. A strange guide this, thought Edward, and not much unlike one of Shakespeare's roinish clowns. I am not over-prudent to trust to his pilotage, but wiser men have been led by fools. By this time he reached the bottom of the alley, where, turning short on a little parterre of flowers, shrouded from the east and north by a close yew hedge, he found an old man at work without his coat, whose appearance hovered between that of an upper servant and gardener, his red nose and ruffled shirt belonging to the former profession, his hale and sunburned visage, with his green apron, appearing to indicate old Adam's likeness set to dress this garden. The major-domo, for such he was, and indisputably the second officer of state in the barony, nay, as chief minister of the interior, superior even to Bailey McWeeble in his own department of the kitchen and cellar, the major-domo laid down his spade, slipped on his coat in haste, and with a wrathful look at Edward's guide, probably excited by his having introduced a stranger while he was engaged in this laborious, and, as he might suppose it, degrading office, requested to know the gentleman's commands, being informed that he wished to pay his respects to his master, that his name was Waverley, and so forth, the old man's countenance assumed a great deal of respectful importance. He could take it upon his conscience to say, his honour would have exceeding pleasure in seeing him. Would not Mr. Waverley choose some refreshment after his journey? His honour was with the folk who were getting doon the dark hag. The twa gardener lads, an emphasis on the word twa, had been ordered to attend him and he had been just amusing himself in the meantime with dressing Miss Rose's flower-bed, that he might be near to receive his honour's orders if need were. He was very fond of a garden, but had little time for such divertisements. He cannot get it wrought in a bon days in the week, at no rate whatever, said Edward's fantastic conductor. A grim look from the butler chastised his interference, and he commanded him, by the name of Davy Gellatley, in a tone which admitted no discussion, to look for his honour at the dark hag, and tell him there was a gentleman from the south had arrived at the ha. 
"'Can this poor fellow deliver a letter?' asked Edward. "'With all fidelity, sir, to any one whom he respects. I would hardly trust him with a long message by word of mouth, though he is more knave than fool.' Waverley delivered his credentials to Mr. Gellatley, who seemed to confirm the butler's last observation by twisting his features at him, when he was looking another way, into the resemblance of a grotesque face on the bowl of a German tobacco-pipe, after which, with an odd congé to Waverley, he danced off to discharge his errand. "'He is an innocent, sir,' said the butler. "'There is one such in almost every town in the country, but ours is brought far ben.' Footnote. See Note 8. End footnote. He used to work a day's turn-wheel enough, but he helped Miss Rose when she was Flemet with the Laird of Killancurrit's new English bull, and since that time we call him Davy Doolittle. Indeed, we might call him Davy do Nothing, for since he got that gay clothing to please his honour and my young mistress, great folks will have their fancies, he has done nothing but dance up and down about the town, without doing a single turn, unless trimming the laird's fishing wand or busking his flies, or maybe catching a dish of trouts at an aura time. But here comes Miss Rose, who, I take burden upon me for her, will be especial glad to see one of the house of Waverley at her father's mansion of Tully Veolan. But Rose Bradwardine deserves better of her unworthy historian than to be introduced at the end of a chapter. In the meanwhile, it may be noticed that Waverley learned two things from this colloquy, that in Scotland a single house was called a town, and a natural fool and innocent. Note 8. I am ignorant how long the ancient and established custom of keeping fools has been disused in England. Swift writes an epitaph on the Earl of Suffolk's fool, whose name was Dickie Pierce. In Scotland the custom subsisted till late in the last century. At Glamis Castle is preserved the dress of one of the jesters, very handsome and ornamented with many bells. It is not above thirty years since such a character stood by the sideboard of a nobleman of the first rank in Scotland, and occasionally mixed in the conversation, till he carried the joke rather too far in making proposals to one of the young ladies of the family and publishing the bans betwixt her and himself in the public church. End of note 8. End of section 14.